All right. You would open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 5. We will be starting off this week in verse 17 of Luke chapter 5. And once you are there, uh, if you can stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with them to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. As we are continuing our exposition of the Gospel of Luke, we find ourselves this week in a hopefully familiar story. Uh, If it's not familiar to you, it will be very soon because we will be uh, nose deep in this text for quite some time this evening. Uh, The title of this sermon is, Who is this? Who is this? And that comes out of the question that the Pharisees ask to one another as they are disputing, they say, who is this who speaks blasphemies? So I think it is an appropriate way to frame uh, the text that Luke puts in front of us because Luke puts this text in front of us as one who is trying to convince us of who this man is. And by giving us this account, he's giving us evidence and claims about who Jesus is. And then we as readers are trying to answer that same question that the Pharisees are asking as well. And the Pharisees answer it one way, and uh, we are going to try to answer that as well as we move through the text. By way of introduction, I would like to uh, just take a look at the introduction that Luke gives us for this account. So I just want to read verse 17. It says, On one of those days he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And for the power of the Lord is with him to heal. And in that uh, verse 17, that rather long verse, we get almost like a prologue into the rest of the text. And there's a little bit of foreshadowing goes on and a little bit of introduction that goes on. And we get uh, two different groups of people introduced to us right off the bat in the text. And as they are leaning in and going towards Jesus, uh, we're almost invited to come and explore Jesus with them. He tells us that not only is there a, a group that's gathered, but actually specifically Pharisees, teachers of the law are sitting there, and they've come from all these surrounding locations. They come from Galilee, from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and they're all coming in to hear and to examine and to assess this Jesus of Nazareth. And as Luke introduces these characters to us, he's framing this in such a way as these people come to evaluate Jesus and what he does. And as readers, that's, that's really what we're doing with this account as well. We're going to the text and we're going to examine this account and we're going to ask ourselves the same questions that the Pharisees ask. And we're going to see whether this Jesus is worth the claims that he makes in the other places in Scripture. And the piece of foreshadowing that Luke gives us in this introduction, uh, he tells us that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And that becomes important later, and Luke decides to frame that for us. But this just draws on something that we've spoken about before, which is that the power of Jesus going and doing the miracles in his earthly ministry is primarily one that flows out of his relationship with God and with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is indwelling in Jesus and working out with power all these miraculous things. And it tells us that it is the Holy Spirit, the power of the Lord that is with him 
to heal. And that's an important thing to know because later in Luke's gospel, we're going to get people who disagree with Jesus's miracles. And then he contests not his own divinity, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit when they challenge him. And so Luke is already laying breadcrumbs of evidence for us that as we go forward, he's going to continue to progressively reveal to us what he's been talking about the whole time. That's all by way of introduction. And so as we get into the meat of this text, I want you to see with me four things that are going to be present in this passage. The first thing is you're going to see the determination of the friends. You're going to see the determination that they have to go find Jesus. The second thing you're going to see is the declaration that Jesus makes. You will see that in verse 20 of that text. And you're going to see the dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees, uh, namely regarding that uh, declaration he made earlier. And then the fourth thing you're going to see in this text is the demonstration of power. And between those four things, it's going to kind of neatly, hopefully, walk us by the hand through the text. And the reason I put those things in front of you is not because that is really the way Luke outlines it for us, but just so we can have little handrails to guide us along as we try to follow the flow that Luke puts in front of us and try to, uh, try to unpack uh, and assess what is going on in this text. It's helpful, at least for me, to try to break it down and follow the logic. So if you'll see with me in verse 18, we're going to see first and foremost the determination Verse 18 says, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So before we go any further in that same text, we're introduced to a group of people. We're just told they are some men. And their their agenda is very simple. They have a friend. He's paralyzed. And they're going to try to get this friend into the presence of Jesus. And we're not given a whole lot of background as to what their relationship with their friend is. We're not told necessarily um, what their motivation is for doing this. But we, we can assess and we can assume a few things from the earlier accounts that we have in Luke's gospel. First and foremost, we know that Jesus is growing in popularity at this point in his ministry. We've seen several times that Jesus goes to teach in synagogues. He performs miracles. He casts out demons. And the concluding remarks in many of those texts is reports go out about him to every place in the surrounding region. That's Luke 4.37. And he goes out in Luke 4.44, and he goes preaching in all the surrounding synagogues of Judea. So he has this massive kind of traveling ministry that has this uh, appeal to it. And most recently, in verse uh, 15 uh, of Luke chapter 5, you would see that the report about him, Jesus, goes out abroad and great crowds begin to gather and hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So Luke is giving us this building, traveling ministry that Jesus has. And part of that ministry is going to go on the ground here as these men, these friends of this paralyzed man, go to try to bring him to Jesus. So either they've heard about this Jesus, they've heard about his teachings, they've heard about his miracles, or what is also likely because Jesus is a traveling preacher is maybe some of them have attended some of his expositions, attended some of these uh, gatherings where he heals people, he casts out demons, and they know of their friend who needs to encounter Jesus. And so they go to him, and when Jesus is next in town, they grab him and they bring him along to go find Jesus. All of that to say that these men are determined to have their friend have an encounter with Jesus. And this determination, I think, is to be contrasted with the determination we saw actually in verse 17 of this text. You see, we see the determination of the friends to get their friend in front of Jesus, their paralyzed man in front of Jesus. But what we also saw was the determination of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to evaluate Jesus. And in that contrast, we get two different kinds of determinations. One group is determined to have an encounter with Jesus, and the other group is determined to make an evaluation about him. The group that determines to evaluate Jesus is coming not for an encounter, not for an experience. They're not coming to uh, receive the word that he has taught. They're coming to assess whether he fits into their doctrine that they teach. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that refers to the teachers of these other religious groups. The Pharisees, at this point in time, are a rather small group, but growing in popularity. They have a massive religious audience that they appeal to. And they go and they send their teachers. They send the people who would be teaching in their seminaries. They send the people who would be pastors of their local synagogues and churches. They're sending the people who are their representative heads of their belief system. And they send them, and they come, you notice, from a few different places. They come from Galilee, so they have some local leaders. They come from Judea, they have some leaders from some of the surrounding towns. 
And they also send Pharisees from Jerusalem, which could and probably does include members of the high council. And the reason that we know that is because Jerusalem is where the, the temple is. That's really the center of the Jewish worship system. And they send their group of people and all these different uh, Pharisees and scribes are determined to make an assessment about who Jesus is. And I think Romans 1.22 tells us uh, about what it is like to evaluate God. Uh, it says, uh, claiming to be wise, they became fools and their foolish hearts were darkened. And that refers to the descent of man from sin into chaos. And that descent is marked by the fact that man claims to be wise. And in claiming to be wise, they become fools. It refers to man's uh, desire to assess God apart from just the reception of God. Man holds God in contempt. And while God is judging man for its wickedness and its rebellion and its sin against him, man says, hold on, you can't judge us. We're going to try to evaluate you see what claims you make, see if you hold up to our standard of morality, to our standard of right living, to our sense of justice and truth, and uh, to our sense of tolerance and acceptance that should range as wide as our hearts allow. And in that same way, Paul says in Romans that they claim to be wise, and in doing so, they reveal themselves to be fools. And so the Pharisees here with their doctrine, their nice memorization of the Torah, their additional laws that they follow and the rules that they obey, they claim this wisdom that they're going to now bring to and assess Jesus with. And that's the very thing that you're going to notice later in this text that is the barrier to entry for why they can't understand what Jesus does. They come with an evaluation criteria, and when he doesn't hit their criteria as they've specified, they've decided to do away with him and away with his claims. But the other group, the group that is determined to simply encounter Jesus, goes with much more simple motives. They go simply to put their friend who needs this healer, who needs this teacher, and they try to put him in front of Jesus. Notice the text nowhere says why they're bringing him to Jesus. We can assume it's because he's paralyzed and he needs healing, but we don't actually know. We just know that their determination and their resolve is to get him in front of Jesus. They don't want him to hear him through the window of the, of the building as it becomes apparent in verse 19 because they need to get inside the building in front of Jesus face to face with this teacher. And in verse 19, you see that moving forward. It says, finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they go up onto the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. And so they go uh, create their own way in, if you will. Uh, they're not going to go through the doors. The doors are overflowing. They can't see in the windows. The windows are full. And so they go up onto the roof, and they're going to make their own way into this building. And that teaches us something about their determination. Namely, it teaches us something that Luke is going to tell us in chapter 11 of his gospel, which is that you should ask, and you will seek, and you will knock. And when you do all of these things, persisting to seek after the Lord in prayer, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Referring to persistence in prayer. And what is prayer if not going straight to the presence of God? As is exactly what these men are doing here, trying to take their paralytic friend straight into the presence of God. And we see the determination of them to get him into their presence. These friends have a resolve, a determination to take their friend who needs Jesus and put him right in front of Jesus. H.A. Uh, Ironside, who has a commentary through the Gospel of Luke, uh, says it this way. He says, It is the sinner's friends who need to pray in order that they may be led to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It is the sinner's friends, the sinner's surrounding people who know God, who know what he can do, who knows the kind of healing that he can provide. It is their job to pray for the sinner, to bring him, as you will, face to face, on their knees in prayer, before God, frequently, as often as is required, until that sinner is also, too, brought to repentance. You see, they know that there is no human help that is to be found for this man. This reminds me of uh, something I read quite some time ago in Pilgrim's Progress. At least it feels long ago. It was earlier this uh, semester in my seminary classes. But there's this encounter that um, 
Christian has with a man whose name is Hopeful. And Christian discusses with Hopeful his conversion to faith, and Christian asks him about his conviction and subsequently his approach to the throne. And Hopeful describes it by saying, uh, he says, I was bid to this effect, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and make me know and believe in Jesus Christ, for I see that his righteousness has not been my righteousness. For I have no faith and I am utterly cast away. Lord, I have heard that thou art a merciful God and has ordained thy son Jesus Christ should be the savior of the world. And Christian asks him uh, about this prayer and he says, and did you do this prayer as the preacher told you? And he said, yes, over and over and over again. And Christian asks him, did the father reveal his son to you? And Hopeful says, not at first, nor at the second, nor at the third, nor the fourth, nor the fifth, nor the sixth time, neither. And Christian says, what did you do then? Hopeful says, what? Well, I could not tell you what I did. And Christian asks him, did you not think about leaving off praying? And Hopeful says, yes, a hundred times and twice over. And Christian says, what is the reason that you did not? I believe that it was true, which had been told me, that without the righteousness of this Christ in all the world, I would not be saved. And therefore, I thought with myself, if I leave off I die, and I can but die at the throne of grace, and with all this came into my mind. It is because it will surely come, and therefore I must not tarry. And Hopeful at that moment tells Christian about how the glory of the Lord is revealed to him as he pursues the Lord over and over and over again in prayer. And it corresponds with the kind of persistence and determination we see from the friends of this paralytic man. Jesus bids us to seek him, to pursue him, and to get before him. And moreover, we have this model throughout the Old Testament as well. We're told that there are people who are in a right relationship with God, who have a justification that they bear that is not their own, and these people are responsible for interceding for the rest of the people on behalf of God. Consider Moses in the wilderness, how the people rebel against God over and over and over again, how God has Moses, and he tells him, I'm going to destroy this rebellious people. And Moses, knowing the kind of seat and ear that he has with the Lord, goes to him and says, please spare your people for the sake of your promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Spare your people. And he uses this special place of affection that he has with God to intercede for the rebellious Israelites. And in so, we have a model of how we as Christians are to intercede for those who we know to be far away from the Lord. We intercede on our knees before them using that special place of affection that we have purchased through, to us through Jesus Christ, and we use that to plead, to pray, and to intercede on their behalf. That is the determination that we have as Christians to go before the Lord, determined to make him pursue those sinners who are lost. This man is beyond all human help. The paralytic has no human solution to his problem, and Neither does any sinner present in the world today. There's nothing that can be sold to them to save them. And in that determination, you're going to see the response of Jesus, namely the declaration that he makes to the man when the man is dropped right in front of him. It says in verse 20, And when he saw their faith, and that refers to the whole group of them, the the friends as well as this man, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. I want you to think about that claim for a little bit, that declaration that Jesus makes, because if you're reading the text like me, uh, I feel like Jesus might have just missed the point of why they brought him to him. They're supposed to bring this man, and Jesus is supposed to see, oh, he's paralyzed, he's in a bed, he couldn't get in. Okay, make him walk. But instead, Jesus assesses the situation, assesses their faith, and says, as as a first and foremost importance, man, your sins are forgiven you. And that leads to a dispute. And this man doesn't even have a chance to respond. We're, kind of, we're just told this declaration that Jesus makes. But before we get into the controversy that causes, I want you to, to ask the question, why is this such a significant thing that Jesus says? What else do we have in Scripture that would tell us about how radical of a statement this is? There's one story for me uh, in the Old Testament that comes to mind, and I'll ask you to turn there with me if you can. It's to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 
2 Samuel chapter 9. Second Samuel uh, chapter 9, as you guys are turning there, uh, finds us in the midst of David on the throne. Uh, David's throne has now been established. And once his throne is established and his enemies are subdued beneath him, uh, he, he asks a question uh, that goes something to the effect of, is there anyone to the house of Saul that I can show my favor to the kindness that I promised to Jonathan, Saul's son? And uh, there's this back and forth inner, inner information relaying that goes on. And eventually, David finds this guy named Ziba, who's a servant of Saul's household. And Ziba tells him about a man named Mephibosheth. And the thing with Mephibosheth is he is a son of Jonathan, a son of Saul. Uh, and the reason Mephibosheth is kind of obscured up until this point in the narrative is he's not honored in battle like any of Saul's other sons are. He's not part of, as you will, the royal household of Saul. He's kind of kept off in the corner. And the reason for that is Mephibosheth is a cripple. Mephibosheth has no ability to walk. And in that society, in that day, much as in Jesus' day, that's a very humbling and vulnerable position to be in. And Ziba uh, tells David about this man named Mephibosheth. And as you go on through the story, you'll notice that uh, David has this declaration that he tells uh, to Ziba and, and tells him, uh, he tells him these things. He says... Uh, this is in verse uh, 10, sorry. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now, now Ziba, we're told, has 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba says to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And in all of this care that David shows to Mephibosheth, one thing is he's unable to do. David can uh, help Mephibosheth. He can uh, make all his felt needs met. He can have him dine at the king's table. He can give him land and property and servants to serve him and wealth that he can cultivate. And he can take care of him and feed him. And he can make the condition of his body almost like an afterthought because of how well cared for he will be. And David seeks within his power, within his authority, as king over all of Israel to do everything that he can to take care of this paralytic man. And yet, David cannot get Mephibosheth sin-free. David cannot fix Mephibosheth's problem uh, that he has and all other Israelites do, which is a problem of a broken relationship with God. But then we're told in Luke's gospel about this man named Jesus who will go on to cure his paralytic condition, but as a first and foremost priority establishes the fact that he can actually take care of the thing that no other king in Israel could have taken care of. And that is that he can make his sins go away. He can remove the problem of sin that this paralytic man has. As David could not do that for Mephibosheth, as powerful as he was, as strong as he was, as much authority as he commanded, his authority does not extend into the realm of being able to forgive sins. But Jesus claims to have his authority extend into that realm. Jesus says, uh, or sorry, Jeremiah eleven thirty four tells us that it is only God who is able to forgive sins. And there's a host of other texts that you can look to for that. But that is uh, Jeremiah referring to the new covenant. And in that new covenant promise, Jeremiah 31, 34, we are told that the sins of the people will be forgiven them. And that is part of this new covenant. And here Jesus comes after this point in redemptive history, doing all these miraculous works, all these signs. And now he makes really in his public ministry, the first kind of claim to divinity excluding, you know, the encounter that he has with, with Satan in the wilderness where Satan challenges uh, his uh, ability to resist temptation. Really, at this point in time, he's not said anything yet that is a direct claim to divinity. The closest thing actually we have is when he's quoting out of Isaiah 61, expositing that text saying, I am the fulfillment of these things. But in this case, he says, your sins are forgiven you. And you'll notice the dispute that kicks up out of that text in verse 21 the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this 
who speaks blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And while they have uh, half of that story right, we can notice at least the uh, truth of their theology. And their theology is right. There is only one person, there is only one being in all of the universe who has the authority to forgive sins. And that's in that second question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They know their Torah, they know their Old Testament, they know the, the prophets. And they know that every time a prophet speaks, pardoning Israel of their sins, the prophet speaks first and foremost and says, thus says the Lord, your sins are pardoned you. There's never been a prophet in all of Israel's history who just directly says, your sins are forgiven you. A prophet would be very careful not to blaspheme the name of God. There's a bunch of ways to do it, depending on which text you're following, the Mishnah or the Talmud, you can blaspheme in a whole host of ways. There's really three that you can do. You can speak against God's law. You can speak uh, ill of God himself, or you can pretend to do things that only God can do. And that kind of blasphemy, that third kind of blasphemy, is the very blasphemy they accuse Jesus of here, and also conveniently within their law, although all are worthy of death, that is a particularly dark kind of blasphemy. And they are, they're asking this question, who is this who speaks blasphemy? They're wrong about that because Jesus is actually God. But they're asking the question, who is this? Because they recognize the kind of claim that he's making. And don't let anyone tell you about Jesus and about the New Testament that he never claims to be God. He claims to be God all over the place. Most notably here when he doesn't correct them. When they ask who speaks blasphemies. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't try to say, oh, hold on guys, I never, I never meant to say that. Because if he was a prophet, if he was trying to be a careful, uh, faithful steward and ambassador of God, he would do what Paul does when people fall down and worship. He would say, no, 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 I'm just a man like you. Don't worship me. Or what happens when angels from heaven come and people worship him? The angel says, get up. I am not God. Only God is worthy of worship. And here, when they ask Jesus why he's putting himself in the place of God, he never corrects them. He claims to forgive sins. He absorbs the charge of blasphemy and never seeks to clarify in this text. And they're asking that question, who is this? And Jesus here in his claim to divinity has kicked up quite a, uh, quite a dispute, quite a controversy that he's going to have to now substantiate, if you will. And he does so uh, in verse 22. It says, Jesus perceived their thoughts and he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise and walk. Now, before we go further, we need to ask uh, if you will, try to see if we can answer that question, which is easier to say. And there's a few lanes to look at, and depending on uh, which commentaries you read, you'll get uh, all, all range of answers to this kind of question. What is the argument that's being put forth here by uh, Jesus? But the argument is actually uh, pretty straightforward, if you will. Jesus is saying, which is easier for me to say? What, what, is, what is something I could more easily get away with saying? Your sins are forgiven you, or get up and walk? You see, the, the, the reality of that is it's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven you because that happens in the invisible realm. There's no way for the Pharisees to falsify or confirm that statement. There's no way for them to uh, say yes or no, that did or did not happen. And so he's saying, it's, uh, that's actually easy for me to say. It's easier for me to say my sins are forgiven you. But what about this? What if I tell this man to get up and walk? What if I do something in the physical realm that will force you to see whether I can or cannot do that thing? Because one of two things happens. Either the man gets up and walks, and it's confirmed, or he doesn't get up and walk, and everyone knows that whatever Jesus previously said was not true either. So there's one of two ways this can go. And we've seen previously, and I think I, we talked about this a number of weeks ago, but the signs of the miraculous that happen in Scripture happen to confirm the witness of God's ambassadors. We see that with Elijah and with Elisha. And so if God is really needed for these kinds of miracles to happen, which he is, and the scribes and the Pharisees are on the same page about that, then if this man has just spoken to blasphemy, he wouldn't have God's backing to do the thing he's about to go do, which is tell this man to get up and walk. If you will, this is a make it or break it kind of question. So Jesus asked the question, which is easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven you or to rise and walk? Basically saying, I can confirm the kind of thing that I just claimed do you want me to do so? We can ask ourselves the same kind of question today as 21st century Christians. Which is easier for God to have said? That he dies for all sin of his people? 
or for him to resurrect on the third day to confirm that he died for the sins of all his people. Which is easier for him to have done? It's actually harder to atone for the sins of all the people, but just to confirm that he did that and he was true in what he was doing, he resurrects on the third day to confirm the claim that he made. And here Jesus is going to, through this challenge, if you will, go straight for power against the Pharisees. He's going to show that he has the divine backing to do the kinds of things that he claims to do. And so as this controversy is kicking up, you'll see finally with me in the text the demonstration that takes place. This is in verse 24. It says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so he's now given the command. He's, he's followed through. He's done the thing he said he was going to do. He's made the statement. And in the text at this point, the Pharisees and the scribes are probably eagerly looking at this man, as is everyone else in the surrounding crowd, as is his friends through the roof. Everyone is keying in to see if this is going to happen or if this is not going to happen. Because you can't just half get up and walk. If you've been paralyzed your whole life, there's only one of two ways this is going to go. But before we move on to what he says, I want, you, I want you to see the reason that Jesus gives for what he says. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he gives the command. So the whole reason he does this, the flow of the argument is, that you know that my authority extends in the realm of forgiving sins. Watch me extend my authority into the realm of healing a paralyzed man through the power of God. And then uh, in most of your Bibles, that, that phrase will be capitalized. It says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And I want you to know, I was diving into this uh, quite a bit this week, uh, the text that underlines your English Bible is a Greek text. And the Greek text has no specific ways to capitalize or denote uh, whether this is referring to Jesus or whether this is just a common title. And so many modern scholars reading your Bible will say that here in the, in the English translation, when it capitalizes son and capitalizes man, what it's doing is it's asserting a title where a title isn't asserted. It's taking and drawing from an interpretive history, an interpretive lens that seeks to elevate this as a title, and that would be Orthodox Christianity, but really the original text doesn't leave us to have this as a title. It's just, you know, a, a, a phrase, if you will, that you may know that the sons of man have authority to forgive sins. But I want you to know your English translation is 100% right when it capitalizes that text. You can trust the faithfulness of the translators of your English Bible because the Son of Man refers to a passage that comes out of Daniel 7. It comes out of Daniel 7. We're going to look there in a second, but before we turn to Daniel 7, I want you to know that Luke doesn't just expect us to believe that the Son of Man refers as a title. In fact, as he unvelops his gospel, he's going to progressively reveal to us the increasing specificity with which that title is used. Luke uses it very carefully. And as the gospel moves forward, Son of Man is only ever used in reference to the character actions out of the character from Daniel chapter 7. In fact, it culminates, for example, in Luke chapter 21, where it says you will see the Son of Man descending on the clouds. And that's just not any person who descends on the clouds. That is the person referred to out of Daniel 7. And you'll see ultimately at his, uh, ex at his trial, right before he's led to be crucified, they ask him about his throne, whether he's ever claimed to be God, and he says, indeed, that he is, in fact, the Son of Man. Jesus claiming that title for himself. And the, the Pharisees, they tear their robes and they say, what more evidence do we need? This man is a blasphemer. Go and crucify him. And so Luke is careful to unpack and to progressively reveal this title to us. But knowing what we know about how he uses the title... We know that when Jesus uses it here, he's referring to that same kind of title. So what is the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? And what does he come to do? Well, to answer all of those questions, let's look at Daniel 7. And it's only two verses, verse 13 and 14 of Daniel chapter 7. This is a prophecy that Daniel is given about... Uh, the future, and Daniel is told by the angel later that this is a uh, prophecy for uh, the coming of the kingdom of God. And in verse 13, we see that Daniel is given night visions, and it says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That's the whole prophecy of the Son of Man there. I want to key in on a few things. First of all, it says he comes to the Ancient of Days. Now, if you look earlier in the text, the Ancient of Days in verse 9 is the one who sits on the throne, ruling and reigning over all creation. So the Ancient of Days, obviously for a Jewish person, this is Yahweh. Ancient of Days is Yahweh. He sits on the throne. And then it says that there's this person who comes like a son of man. So it comes in the likeness of a son of man. And he comes to the Ancient of Days and is presented before him. And what the Ancient of Days does is interesting. He gives this person dominion and he gives him glory and he gives him a kingdom. And he not only gives him a kingdom over Israel, he gives him a kingdom that goes over all peoples, all nations, all languages. And we're told that this is not a temporary dominion. This is not one of the kings of Israel. This dominion is an everlasting dominion. And all of those things will cue you in if you're familiar with another prophecy in 2 Samuel 7.16 where God says to David that he's going to establish his throne and that throne will be established everlastingly. And one day, one person who comes on his throne is going to be established forever. And that prophecy extends uh, to Solomon immediately, how Solomon isn't punished for the sins that he is guilty of. It happens after the fact. But ultimately, it extends and it looks deeper down the annals of history and into the future. And it foresees one who comes from the throne of David, one who's a shoot off of that household, who is given a dominion that never fades, never dies. It's a dominion that reigns and rules forever. And that person in Matthew's gospel is Jesus. And in Luke's gospel, he ties the same genealogy through David to Jesus. And here we're seeing again that Jesus now claims to be this son of man character who's given authority, given a kingdom, and given dominion. And so not only does he claim uh, divinity when he says your sins are forgiven, he also claims divinity when he refers to himself as the son of man. He says that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which is one of the things that the son of man can do in Daniel chapter 7. He's given that dominion. He's given that authority. And the Son of Man has his authority. And Jesus says, so you know that the Son of Man has authority. Watch what I'm about to do. And that all implies that he, in fact, is the Son of Man who's been given this kind of authority. And he turns and says to the paralyzed man, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And remember, up until this point, we've not heard anything from the paralyzed man. He hasn't responded to the sins are forgiven part, at least that's not included in Luke's account here. They kind of gloss over all of that. The first response we get from this man comes after the command to rise up, go, and go home. In verse 25, we see the response of the man. And immediately, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. So Jesus has made the claim. He's now substantiated that claim with evidence. And you can imagine the scene unfolding As this man gets up, the man who's been paralyzed forever, his whole life, he gets up, he picks up the bed frame, and he walks out of the crowd. Now, these men had a hard time getting into the crowd, but you can imagine they're clearing a way for this guy to go home. He gets up, he's in the center of attention now, and it's all banking on him, whether or not Jesus is who he says he is, or whether Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. And this man gets up, he picks up his bed frame, and he goes home. And in that, the full evidence of everything that has been previously claimed has happened. The Pharisees and the scribes, you'll notice, they don't say anything after this. Because what is there to say? Jesus doesn't fit in their doctrine. He doesn't fit into their system. And yet, they don't want to accept what has been plainly revealed to them. Claiming to be wise, they have become fools. They've become the people who can look and perceive and clearly see the revelation of God in his word and yet are blinded to the truth of it. And this man goes, he walks away, and he walks away as a new creation, glorifying God. His sins have been forgiven, his body has been healed, and he goes home glorifying and praising God as a very fitting response to the kind of encounter he has just had with Jesus. The miracle has confirmed the claim that just happened. And when everyone sees this, verse 26, amazement seizes them all, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, and in a famous Lukean understatement, 
We have seen extraordinary things today. We have seen extraordinary things today. They, uh, he really undersells the, the importance of what just happened. Jesus has just gone head to head in his first encounter with the religious group and completely blown them out of the water. He didn't get caught into a theological debate with them. He just goes, fine. You want me to prove what I said I can do? I'm going to do it. He does it. No response. I can't imagine how this scene unfolds, whether the scribes and the Pharisees have to like quietly, quietly shuffle out the back, whether they have to you know, walk through the crowd with everyone seeing what just happened. But this is really a moment for us in Luke's text where public opinion begins to become very clear, and there's battle lines that get drawn. This is the first time Jesus encounters these scribes and Pharisees, at least in Luke's account. And in this first encounter, they are, they're drawing, their, they've, they've staked their claim. They've resolved that Jesus is not the Messiah, and they're going to do everything in their power to make sure that political Israel and religious Israel doesn't follow after this guy. Regardless of what evidence he produces, they're going to make sure that no one falls victim to following after Jesus. And they've resolved to do so. They do so at the expense of destroying evidence. They do so at the expense of, uh, of ultimately killing Jesus. And later... Uh, you'll see a similar encounter where Jesus uh, heals a man who's been born blind. And then they're asking this man, were you actually blind? He got his parents involved. You, is this the guy who, who was blind? Is this your son? And the whole time, the evidence is so plainly in front of them, but they're basically using their political weight, their authority, to try to get people to be cowards and not follow after Jesus. But they have no backing. They have nothing that supports them because Jesus did the thing that he asked them, which is harder, and at that point, there's no debate. There's no debate as to what is going to happen going forward. Jesus has unequivocally destroyed this debate. And you'll notice that as this man walks away, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't only give him the command to rise up and walk, he also actually gives him the power to do so. He gives him the power to actually follow through and to obey the thing that he's just said. He says, get up and walk, and he does so, and this man is now a new creation, he does so by literally enlivening his legs, creating them anew, and allowing him to walk forward. And this miracle has a parable-like quality to it, as many of the miracles that Jesus does, in which we can, we can imagine how this is true of really all of the new creations of Jesus. That not only does he give them a command to obey, but he also gives them the power to obey that command. He doesn't just say, rise up and walk. He actually gives them the strength to follow through with that. He doesn't just say your sins are forgiven you. He actually gives them assurance through the Holy Spirit that their sins are forgiven them. And we can ask a couple of questions, but namely I want to ask the question, do we trust in his word? Do we take him at his word when he says your sins are forgiven you? Do we believe that? There's a, a method of studying scripture that you can use that uh, you can ask some questions of the text. And a few of those questions I think are, are pretty helpful here. Uh, the first one is, is there a promise in this text that we can believe? Is there a promise here for us to believe? And as we reflect on the, the response that this uh, paralytic has to Jesus, uh, we see that uh, the promise to him was that his sins are forgiven, and then the secondary promise is get up and walk. Now, the invisible promise is hard to confirm, as we've discussed, but the physical promise, he actually has to get up and follow through with that and believe that this is something that Jesus has actually done. And he's working and he's moving and he actually goes through and follows that. But as believers at the New Testament time, we can ask that same question. Is there a promise for us in Scripture to believe about the forgiveness of sins that Jesus says? And you can think about the text, for example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a promise that we are asked to believe. We have to take God at his word. We're given the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're given the abundant testimony through the Old and the New Testament Scripture. But at the end of the day, it's a promise that Jesus offers to all believers and we have to believe it. He says there is no condemnation. And we as New Testament Christians have to go and live like there is no condemnation. We have to take him at his word. We have to approach the throne of grace knowing that there is no condemnation. And we have to ask and pray and repent knowing that there is no condemnation. So we can do all of those things. In Psalm 103 verse 12, it tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far does God cast our sins apart from one another. And we are challenged to believe that. As Christians, do we believe God at his word when he says he dealt with our sin, he took care of it, there's no more effort on our part to do. There's nothing more for us to follow up on. There's nothing more for us to work out. We're just called to believe 
that. And that's hard because our natural inclination is to do, 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 thinking that we can somehow give our own kind of evidence to his claim. The second uh, question we can ask for the text, not only is there a promise to believe, but is there a command for us to obey? Is there a command for us to obey present in this text? And there's a pretty obvious one. Do you live as a new creation in Christ? The command to obey is to get up and be the new creation that God has created you to be. Now in this man on the ground, the command to obey manifests itself in his paralyzed legs going forward and living out as a new creation, glorifying God with a redeemed heart, with a justified spirit, he goes home. And as Christians, uh, we, we can look at this text and we can, we can draw the obvious parallels, right? He's paralyzed physically, but at, at, a, at a deeper level, Jesus assesses his spiritual, uh, his spiritual paralysis and says that he has no ability to go forth, no ability to, on his own, walk around, no ability to live as a new creation. He doesn't have the strength to do so. I'm going to heal his heart, and then I'm going to heal his legs, and both are going to testify to this new creation. And as Christians, we are called to the same thing. We're called to have our sins forgiven, to believe that, but we're also commanded to obey the kind of response in Scripture where we're supposed to not be just hearers of the Word, but we're supposed to be doers of the Word. We're supposed to live out this Christian walk bearing fruit, showing off the kind of evidence of conversion, showing off the fact that we are, in fact, a new creation. Not as if that showing off evidence is somehow confirming or adding to our justification, but that showing off is just bearing witness to the fact that we have been made new. New creations look different than old creations. New creations go immediately and are changed. They go in a way that it was not the way that they came. You come in dead to yourself and you leave living, glorifying God and completely freed of the bondage to sin. That's the kind of command that we are called to obey as Christians. And if you're not walking in new life with Christ, we're commanded to obey that. If you're a new creation, there's no reason to live in your old way. There's no reason to pretend like sin has dominion or enslavement over you. It would be rather strange if this man knew he could get up and walk, and then eventually he goes and sits back down in his bed and reduces to begging again. But such is the picture of Christians who think of themselves still as being enslaved to sin. We're walking and living as though we are actually not new creations when in fact we are. And it's a strange thing for us to do. And yet, we know that that is the kind of natural inclination of our hearts because the accuser levies all kinds of complaints against us, tells us that we can't believe the promises of God, tells us we can't obey the promises of God, and then challenges us to go back into enslavement with sin. And yet, sin has no power over believers. Sin has no weight over us. And guilt has no weight over us. And none of these things should prevent us from living as new creations. And as this man goes home glorifying God, you'll notice he's very quickly outside of himself and onto worship and praise of God. And that is really one of the fruits of being a new creation. You seek to glorify God. You seek to give praise that's due his name. That's the kind of natural fulfillment of the joy that he has. You see, he has joy when he hears his sins are forgiven. He has joy when he can get up and walk. But his joy is made complete and made manifest and made full when he can take that all the way back and bring it to praising God. His life bears witness to the fact that he is a new creation, but so does his mouth and his lips and his tongue. And that is why Christians for centuries have been uh, unstoppable hymn writers and unstoppable musicians and unstoppable uh, journalers because all they're trying to do with uh, records of history and with their preaching and with their teaching and with their language to one another is to manifest all of these things to bring God praise and worship. We are jealous of what the angels get to do in heaven, praising God all the time. The angels have to peek into earth sometimes and show us what we're missing out on. And as Christians, we are jealous for the fact that one day we will actually get to go do that thing. We will get to bring God praise, bringing our joy to completion bringing our joy full circle because we can glorify God fully and eternally. That's the picture of heaven as Christians. And so all of these things in the text bear witness to the fact that we need to be pardoned by Jesus. We need to believe him at his word. And we need to live out as the new creations that he has told us that we are. And if that speaks to your heart today, I hope that that encourages you. It has greatly encouraged me this week as well. But know all of these things that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it about to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He has told us that for those who are in him, 
the devil has no more ability to levy a charge against us. And we are told and we are given assurance that if he sent his son Jesus to us and paid for our sins, how much more will he yet give us all things? Which is easier to do? Give us Jesus or sanctify us into his image? Which is easier to do? To claim that you are actually pardoned and then to give you the fruit of that pardoning. And he asks us that question all the time and he substantiates both claims by his continued faithfulness to us. And so believe him, Christian. Be encouraged by his faithfulness and walk as a new creation in Christ, knowing that the old is gone and there is only now the new that is coming. Let's pray. Father God, you are a good and gracious God to us, your feeble people. Lord, you always throughout your word bring about a response of glory, a response of awe, a response of amazement. And Lord, we are just so enamored with you so blown away by the grace that you show, by your free gift that we can receive, by the fact that you have power and you freely distribute that power. You allow us to actually live as blood-bought creatures of the King, sitting at the table, and not just sitting at the table with our felt needs, but sitting at the table fully justified in a spiritual sense. And we can do that confidently. We can do that continually. And Lord, I pray that you would preach to each and every one of our weak hearts as we go throughout the week, that we would be steadfast in that promise, that we would be steadfast in obedience to that promise, to be conformed into the image of your Son. Lord, give us this grace. Help us now as we continue in worship to you. Help us to loose our lips in praise, that we can rightly bring glory to your name as is fitting to it. Lord, we ask and we pray all these things, approaching your throne, hoping to be with you, knowing that you are there continually. Lord, in your holy and precious name, we ask all these things. Amen.